Once again, if you didn't hear at the time of the announcements, my name is Jeff, one of the elders here at the church, and today we are continuing on in our study of the book of Acts, so if you would please go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. We're going to be in Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 16, so again, Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 16, and if you're going to use one of the Bibles in front of you, the page number will be 857. This is Kyle Jameson. He's going to be reading our, uh, our passage for today. So if you would, please go ahead and stand in reverence of God's word as he does that. Good morning, church. Today we're in Acts 3, verses 1 through 16, if you'll read along with me. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms, and Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him up by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though we may, as though by our own power or piety, We have made him walk. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And by his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat now. Pray for us. Thank you, Kyle. Father, we love you and trust you. Thank you for this day. Thank you for uh, the gift uh, that you are as our Father. And uh, I pray, Lord, that today, as we hear this word preached, that you Uh, You give us greater faith. You give us an understanding of your son Jesus and the realities of this life and how uh, our hope is found in you. Lord, thank you for this church. Thank you for the fact that we can come and worship you uh, freely, openly, and in a way that uh, brings glory to you. And I pray we do that today. Again, we thank you for this opportunity. We thank you for your spirit that dwells in us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Now, as we begin today, as we've kind of made uh, a little bit of headway into the book of Acts, Uh, I wonder if you notice that this chapter, chapter 3, actually begins a new day for the apostles and the early church. The reason why I wonder about that, it's not so much because it might add to the overall truth that's actually written down in this chapter, but I know that I'm prone, as I read the Bible, to imagine that these events that we read about and study happen really like one right after the other, as if there was no noticeable breaks in the miracles or wondrous works that were being done at that time. But in actuality, if we think about it, all things that we get to read about in the book of Acts actually take place over around a a span of 30 years or so. 
So the book of Acts takes a really long time for it to play out. Therefore, in our study, we have to allow for a lot of things to happen, even if we don't read about them. We need to recognize how there's a lot of things sort of going on under the surface of Scripture, even if we're not reading about them. And let me give you an example just to explain a bit about what I'm talking about. Over the past six weeks, we have uh, taken the last five of six weeks to preach through a particular day, and that was the day of Pentecost. And then last week, Nate preached about how the church, in that moment, right after Pentecost, really began to develop and grow over an unknown length of time. So we spent five weeks of the past six weeks talking about a singular day, and then Nate's sermon last week was really uh, could be expanded over this larger period of time where they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and all that sort of thing. Basically, the only thing that we're given as a way of summary for that section of Scripture is that through the faithfulness of those new Christians, again, as they devoted themselves in worship of Jesus Christ to teaching, preaching, uh, prayer, community, and service, many and many more men and women were added to their number. They were added to the church's number, meaning many more and more people were receiving salvation and therefore being added into God's kingdom. That's really the only summary that we can pull from that very specific extended piece of time. So why does that matter, you might ask. Jeff, why are you telling us this? Fine, we're in chapter 3. Why are you bringing this up? Well, I bring this up because I wanted to encourage you. Actually, I wanted to encourage you because in this passage, we get to have a very close look at a particular miracle. And if we're honest, miracles can mess with our hearts. When we read about miracles in the Bible, it can mess with our hearts if we're unable to see what is miraculous around us. And I do think that there's a mistake that the church at large has made as we've studied the scripture, and that is when we see that the early church was given many of these more obvious miracles, that those same things should always be happening around us even today. We make that mistake as we now look for them in all sort of corners of the room, that those same things should always be happening. But in reality, what we read If we think about the rest of the New Testament, what we read about in the rest of Scripture is that this life is not typically made up of miraculous events. Rather, in the way that we, uh, they're not made up of miraculous events in the way that they're sort of one right after another. Rather, oftentimes a miraculous life is recognized when we look back. When we look back at what we have been through and as we see how God has been consistently at work in our life, even through those moments which we might label as mundane. And I'm bringing this up because those miracles are just that. They're miraculous. That's why they're labeled miracles. They're unique. They're special. Yes, they're wonderful and mysterious. And yes, of course, we should desire to experience them. We want to experience them. But incorrectly, we might believe that it is those mountaintops that should define our life. We, should, we could incorrectly believe that it is those mountaintops that should define our life. So we then therefore chase after them. We seek only after the miraculous and improperly, we give all of our attention to the thing that wasn't meant to sustain our life. It's only meant to last for that moment because what exists on the mountaintop was never meant to sustain our life. Rather, if you think about it, in a picture where the flowers grow or where the cool grasses spread across the land and where the stream flows, that is where life is meant to be lived. Not on the mountaintop where it's sparse and cold, it's 
in the valleys. It's in the valleys of the mountains where life is found, where we are actually provided for. We are to find our hope among those common miracles, which too often become to us mundane. And again, I'm saying all this, I'm, I'm sort of giving this poetic picture because we are so desperately desirous of what this man has in this passage or what he has given in this passage. We can easily desire the miracle that this man is allowed. Some of us yearn for miraculous healing, and that's an okay thing. I'm not saying that's wrong. Please continue to ask our good Father for that gift. And in fact, include us. We're a church that loves to pray with and for one another. We say that every single week. So it's not wrong to desire this miraculous healing. But please, also, in that sort of wrestle, hear this as well. Our Father is and always will be good. And he desires what is good for you, even if you might not receive that kind of miraculous healing today. Because our promise is this, that we will one day all be healed. That all of us will be healed by faith one day, forever, and always. Now this passage, although I'm, I'm talking about the miracles and all of this passage talks about a miracle, it is not about the wondrous healing of a man. Rather, like the other parts of Acts, it's about the authoritative promise of salvation in Christ alone. So we need to remember that as we study this section of Scripture. It's not about the miraculous healing, the wondrous healing. It's about the authoritative promise of salvation in Christ alone. And we can know that because the end result of this event, of this particular day, in, uh, we're told about in chapter 4-4, is that 5,000 men would be saved. That's the end result of what we're getting into. 5,000 men are saved. But now, as we are at this section of Scripture, we're not quite in chapter 4. Although we are here in our text today, this is where the beginning of that miraculous day actually starts. Although our study of this day's events actually take us through chapter 3 and chapter 4. And in these chapters, again, chapter 3 and most of chapter 4, what we see happening is actually quite a lot. There's a lot there. Number one, we see this miracle. This is what we're going to be talking about today. There's a miracle that happens. Two, the apostles then preach the word of God. Three, what happens next is that the apostles are actually persecuted and, in fact, arrested for preaching the word of God. And number four, after all of this, what we learn is that God all along has known that this would happen as he continues his plan of building his kingdom. There's a lot that happens on this particular day that we're about to study, that we're beginning to study, and we're going to take the next, including this week, five weeks to walk through a singular day. So let me take us back to our text, and I'll reread that moment that is being retold to us in scriptures about the man who was healed and what leads to these 5,000 souls being saved. So this is Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. This is what it says. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing, John, or seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixes attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. 
And he took him by the hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Again, this is a new day in the timeline of Acts, but we are picking up this story actually in the afternoon. We're picking it up in the ninth hour, we are told. It's the ninth hour of this particular day, which is somewhere around uh, 3 p.m. And why is that significant? Well, according to the rabbinical tradition, the Jewish people would gather two times a day for prayer and worship. It would happen uh, once in the morning around the third hour, which we learned in chapter 2, and then again a second time in the afternoon like we're learning now. So the reason why this matters is because Luke is telling us that there are a lot of people there. (laughs) There are a lot of people there at the temple at this time who are getting ready to do the traditional and faithful thing of worshiping God, not knowing that they were about to witness something that they only heard was possible. They were about to witness something that they only heard about or only heard could happen. So let me paint the scene for you. Two of the apostles, Peter and John, who were friends who went all sorts of different places together, Peter and John. They were headed to the temple because at that time, this is still where the people went to worship God, and the temple was beautiful, right? The temple was big. There were columns and gates and archways and uh, colonnades, all of which were polished and ornately decorated, and all of it was meant to draw a person into a deeper sense of worship to the God who had given and created all things. That was the purpose of the temple, to, to, to prepare the hearts of the people for worship. But outside of the temple were these ponds, and some of them were believed to be healing ponds. Basically, the thought was this. When an angel would sort of float down and stir the water, if you saw it and you were the first person in the water, then you'd get to be healed. But also, because these were those healing ponds, this is where the less fortunate would sit and beg for money. They would, uh, they would be carried there, as we learned, and beg for support or for money or for alms. After all, like this man in this story, if you were crippled or in some greater degree unable to provide for yourself, this is the way that you would be able to acquire, hopefully, provisions for your life. So this man sat there, whether he was laid there. He was laid there at the beautiful gate, begging to the many parishioners who continued to pass by him, asking for alms, asking for money. But then amidst the crowd, as he sort of peered through the legs of the people as they walked by, he noticed Peter and John. His attention was drawn to them, and he called out to them for money. He said, sirs, if you would please, just some money. Anything is something. But then, I imagine with like an intensity of the Spirit, Peter and John gaze at this man and call him to give him their full attention, and Peter shows him what he actually is in need of. Now imagine in that moment for this man, in an instant, everything around him, all the bustling noise of the temple instantly quieted, and the only thing that he could focus on, only thing that he heard was Peter's words. In verse 6, Peter says, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Walk. 
And he did. Right? He did. That's great news. Now, Peter wasn't, wasn't, uh, wasn't lying. He was, in fact, telling the truth. He, he really didn't have money. Money wasn't something that he directly had himself. We learned about this last week. The church at that time had decided that they must pool all of their money together as a way to make sure that everyone and the church was taken care of. So whatever money uh, Peter and John might have had, they didn't consider it to be their own. It was the church's. And obviously you can only give away what you possess. Therefore, Peter gave to him what he did have, which was something far greater than what money can buy. You see, this man needed more than food and clothing. He needed more than food and clothing. He needed healing for his body and salvation for his soul. And Peter knew that. Now, we could write a book, obviously, as there probably are many books written about this, about how we like to use our money to try and get those things, both of those things, both healing and salvation, because we can so easily wrongly believe that money makes us safe in this world. That money can get us the best kind of medical care so our bodies will slow down or stop decay. But the true kind of security and in fact abundant of life that we actually need ultimately and only comes from the power of God, not money, not wealth, not clothing, Now think back to this man again. Think back to this man who has just healed the man who from birth was dependent upon other people to carry him around the city. He could get nowhere. In an instant, when he heard the words of Peter, this man was touched by the power of the one who continues, even after he ascended into heaven, continues to prove himself to be the Christ, continues to prove himself to be their Messiah, our Savior, this crippled man, had lived a debilitated life all his life, but in a moment he was raised up and given a new kind of life. It's a glorious picture of the gospel, a glorious picture of who we are. And notice the correlation between our condition and his without Christ. He, this man, was born lame. None of us are able to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord unless we are made into a new creation by Christ. This man was born poor. We are all sinners, bankrupt before God, unable to pay the debt that we accrued. This man was left, if you remember, just outside the temple. He, didn't, he didn't, wasn't brought in. He went in with Peter and John. He was left just outside the temple because all sinners are in the worst of conditions as they are separated from God, no matter how close they feel that they are to the door. This man's new life was given to him, what we are to understand simply and only by the grace of God, and it happened in an instant. He was given a new life in an instant. Can you imagine the elation that this man experienced? Can you imagine the transformation of his heart that he, he now recognized, the absolute wonder and joy as he attempted his first step? He was raised up, and as he goes to take his first step, his foot and his ankle connected and he was able to do so. And then he took another and then another. And then that 
other step turned into a skip, and that turned into a leap. And until this man was simply prancing around the temple, singing and shouting praises to the one and only Jesus Christ of Nazareth, absolutely making a scene, if you can imagine, right? This very faithful religious traditional place, and this man is leaping and singing and shouting the name of Jesus. And as it would for us too, this caught the attention of the people who were there. Right? If someone came leaping and jumping in here right now, it would catch our attention. And it did for them as well. They knew this man, in fact. They recognized that he is the man that they have walked by day after day. But now he's the one walking. Something has happened. But notice what Peter and John do in that moment. Look at verse 11. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Peter noticed the crowd took notice. He, 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 he recognized the fact that this is a divine appointment and he decided to tell the crowd what has just happened and, how, and, and what this miracle pointed to. Because you see, every miracle that we read about in the Bible, in fact, any miracle for that matter, is not just a wondrous work. Rather, each miracle is meant to be a divine sign that points us to something even greater than that wondrous work. You understand? Like We shouldn't seek after the wondrous work. We are, rec- we are to recognize that it points us to something even greater. And that is Christ. So Peter begins to preach. After all, as we know, as we have learned from our Bible, how are people to believe unless they are to hear? And how will they hear unless they are preached to? That's just Romans 10, 14. We are to share the good news of Christ with people. We are to call them to faith, to repent and be baptized. How are they to believe unless they have heard? And how are they going to hear if someone does not preach? Romans 10, 14 again. So Peter begins to do just that. Because he wants what is true to be perfectly clear and known and understood by these people in the temple who have come again to faithfully worship the God of creation. So he tells them what they just witnessed was not done by them. They are not the ones with the power of life. They are not the ones with the power of resurrection. Rather, believe it, you people who are here hearing this, they said, this was done by the one whom you murdered and who came back to life by the power of God because death had no claim on him. That is who did this. Look at verse 12. This is Peter's beginning of Peter's sermon. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power of piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he, deci- when he decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of all of you. Again, this is only the beginning of Peter's sermon on that day. And it sounds a bit familiar, doesn't it? 
The things that he just told these Jewish men, it does sound a bit familiar. It sounds familiar because this is almost the same sermon that Peter preached on that other day that we just finished studying, the day of Pentecost. Because it was there, too, that he told those other Jewish men that they murdered Jesus. He's telling them again. And the reason for that was because Peter's motive was to preach towards a particular end, and that end was for, was for the conversion of these Jewish men. He's not just trying to make them feel bad. He's not just trying to make them feel guilty. Rather, his desire is genuine faith. That's his ultimate end. That's what he desires for them is genuine faith. And there is just simply cannot be and there never will be any true conversions of faith unless there is first genuine conviction about your own sin guilt for them or for us. Now, as this is just the beginning of Peter's sermon, Maranatha, I'm going to end there. I'm going to end there with this sermon because there's a lot more to study about this day and we'll, we'll continue next week. There's more to hear from Peter's preaching, but I, I feel as though I must ask you something before I finish here, and that is, do you recognize your own need for a Savior? Do you recognize your need for a Savior? Not just one that's going to get you out of hell but one that will lead your life, one that in fact guides you in righteousness. Are you willing to follow him? Peter calls Jesus the author of life, and he does that because Jesus, through his word, did create all things of the universe. Therefore, he alone is the only one who is able to control and determine all the things in the universe. And not only has he set all things in motion, but he also, according to Hebrews 1.3, holds it all together simply by his authoritative word. He not only set it in motion, he also holds it all together. Maranatha, do you recognize that you have stood against the author of life? In your heart, is there a conviction, a recognition that you have stood against the author of life, the one who in fact gave you the breath that is in your lungs and who has brought you here today to hear this word so that you may believe? You are here so that you may believe. Even those who have faith, a greater faith is available, a deeper understanding and conviction as you recognize this assured conversion that you've been given. I do pray. I pray every single Sunday, if not throughout the week also, but specifically on Sunday, that we do have ears to hear. You do have eyes to see this truth, but also that the Holy Spirit has given you a new heart so that you can believe that it is Jesus who has also made the way back to him possible. Each of us need to be reminded of that, that the way back to him has been made possible by him. It was him who took on the penalty of your sin. It was him who exchanged his life for yours so that you and I could receive the greatest of all gifts, that being eternal healing and abundant life, which is only found in Jesus, who is the Christ. Again, not just a God, not just a Savior that gets us out of hell, but one that guides us and leads us in this life towards the next in righteousness. 
We are saved by him, and we are being saved by him. Maranatha, our hope is not in the things of this world. It cannot be in the things of this world. It is not in the financial security that is preached almost more often in churches today. It is not in the conditions of our now mortal bodies. It is not in the size of our homes or the cost of our toys, the vacations we take, the bank accounts that we try to swell, the popularity that we garner, the body we sculpt, the spouse we marry, the children we birth. Our hope must only be on a foundation that is solid and made of rock. One that cannot break up, one that won't be taken away, one that will not fade and will not rust. Maranatha, faith in faith is not our answer. Rather, our salvation, our assured conversion, only comes about, as Peter says, through faith in Jesus, who is the Christ. That is where your hope is found. That is where the gospel leads us, in Jesus, towards Jesus, because our hope for this life and the next is gifted to us by the name of Jesus. That means per his authority. That is the good news of the gospel. That is what Peter wants for these men to hear as well as you today so that we may believe. There's more to come. Let's pray. Father, we love you and trust you. Thank you for your willingness to challenge us. Help us, Lord, to respond obediently. Help us to desire what you call for us to do. Help us to submit to your guiding and your leading. Lord, you are perfect and good, and you desire for us to receive those good gifts. You are a good father. Help us to recognize that all things work according to your purpose and for the good of those who love you. We trust you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.